Anybody missing an iPad? No. I don't normally preach from these. I could, but I've got paper this morning. I'm just scared I'm going to get animated and break it. Here, AJ, you hold on to it. Then it's your fault. There. Okay. I'm going to be reading from Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. We've been in this, these two verses for a number of weeks, moving through the Christmas season, because I think there's a lot there to unpack as it relates to what it means to imitate Jesus and grow in Christ, but also the themes of that dovetail really well with the themes of Christmas and Advent. So I'm going to read it, and then we'll move forward together. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It was even, I mean, maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago in some ways, the Christmas season used to be a time when there was sort of a unique peak of holiday stress. And it would set in maybe late November, early December, and you had your additional normal responsibilities, but on top of that, there were new demands. There were gifts to buy, preparations to make, more people to see, more family dynamics to navigate. And the result was as people moved towards Christmas, their lives got increasingly more stressful and increasingly busier and increasingly more fragmented. But today, at least my experience pastorally in talking to people, is that it's more common to simply just exist inside what used to be a what used to be only experienced in kind of peak seasons of the year, that's now become kind of normalized for us as a culture. Many people live kind of crazy busy lives or at least live with a mind that seems scattered in a number of different directions. And as a result, they might be very busy with very, very good things, but it doesn't feel like life is cohering the way that they would like or the way that they imagine that it could or should. We continue to lead busy lives and many of us find ourselves exhausted, anxious, agitated, being stressed, overwhelmed, and that's before we even move into the Christmas season. Now this morning I don't want to talk about all the different factors that have led to that as a phenomenon within our culture, but I want to talk about one spiritual discipline, one practice that I actually think holds a pretty powerful key to unlocking a very different kind of life, a better kind of life, a saner kind of life, a healthier kind of life across every dimension. And that is a spiritual discipline of simplicity. Now, depending on the circles that you swim in, you either are exposed to the word simplicity or the concept a lot or very, very little. But what I wanna emphasize this morning is that simplicity is actually a spiritual discipline that is grounded in the Bible. And what it does is it helps us address life in such a way that it protects us from slowly getting seduced into a pattern of life that is increasingly complicated and fragmented and ultimately burdensome. So let me ask, or let me talk about what is simplicity. Because when a lot of people hear the word simplicity, that term gets conflated with minimalism. And minimalism as a operating philosophy isn't necessarily a bad thing. Minimalism says, how do I live on the minimum amount of 
stuff, commitments, I can so that my life is stress-free. So the minimalist movement has many things to teach us, but minimalism isn't the same thing as simplicity. In fact, I would argue when I talked about how there's a very big difference between imitating someone and mimicking someone, right? The imitation of someone is an attempt to take on the totality of the essence of someone else, whereas mimicry is just kind of a superficial trying to pass off the appearance of being like someone else. I think there's a dynamic equivalent there where minimalism is structuring the outside of one's life to be as complication-free as possible. Again, not a bad thing. But simplicity actually goes deeper. It's about an interior state. And the interior state is rooted in not necessarily having less or even doing less. Simplicity is a spiritual discipline where you learn to live with a focused purpose. That's what simplicity is. Simplicity is living with a focused purpose. I think it's important to emphasize that simplicity is about focus and not primarily about the outside um, accessories and commitments of our lives. It's about knowing what you're living for, who you're living for, so that you can avoid what I call lifestyle bloat. That as you get older, there are just more people to get to know and more opportunities to say yes to and more responsibilities that you need to say yes to and on and on it goes. And more, clearly yes, more stuff that you can accumulate. And what can happen is without our conscious awareness, our, the posture of our heart and our whole lives become bloated from the inside out because we're trying to continue to keep up with an ever-increasing, expanding, expanding concentric circles of demands on our time and energy and money. And as a result, one of the warnings Jesus had for us is to say, be very careful that your life doesn't become unfocused because those other things, even if they're very, very good, have, they, um, they contain within themselves the, the seeds of destruction in the sense that they can crowd out and overwhelm the very best things in your life, your highest priorities, your first things. In Mark 4, Jesus tells a parable. It's a pretty famous parable about a sower, a farmer who goes and sows seeds in the seed, same seed, but it falls on four different ground, and that ground is an analogy for the human heart or four different kinds of people. And on the third soil, the third ground that the seed is sown, Jesus warns those who would follow him. And he says, I want you to understand some of this seed is going to fall along this soil. And he says, these are people who hear the word. They receive what God has for them. They hear the truth about who God is and how they're called to live. And they embrace it. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness for wealth, and the desires for other things choke out that word and make it unfruitful. So it's not that these people rejected what God had for them. They embraced it. But there was a kind of lifestyle and commitment bloat that over time choked out the very, kind of choked out the plant that was meant to blossom into fruitfulness and to allow this person to move into flourishing. And certainly when Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of wealth, he's talking about a danger there, but you can look at your own life and say, there are just desires for other things, and some desires for other things are really good. We can desire for good things. But I've certainly lived my life 
in seasons where I have let the desire for good things overwhelm, push down, sideline, even choke out the best things, my highest priorities. And what happens when we allow ourselves to move into that space is that one day we wake up or we have a moment where we're moving through life and we're saying, I don't like the way my life feels. I just feel like I've got, I'm juggling too many balls in the air. My life is fractured. I, I feel like I can't just focus on things anymore or the right things. I feel like I can't say no to things. I feel like life is happening to me. I'm being carried along. I don't feel like I have any agency in my life. And we don't often notice these secondary things becoming primary things until a significant amount of damage has already been done. And now we're in a situation where we have to figure out how do I prune this garden so that I get rid of these weeds that I didn't intend to overtake my life and my heart, but they have. Now what do I do about it? And to that extent, sometimes some of these principles that you learn about in the minimalist movement of Yes, saying no more, reducing your commitments, reducing some of the material possessions in your life. Those can be very, very helpful things. They can be very helpful supports to living a simple life, right? I mean, accumulating less stuff is just going to mean you have fewer things to care about and manage, right? You have less chance of going into debt. You have uh, fewer things that you possess, and that means that it's less likely that those things are going to possess you, right? That famous... Um, quote from uh, Fight Club, I think it was, right? Like the things we own end up owning us, right? So the less you own, you kind of create a protective barrier there. Generally speaking, you can live with greater simplicity and freedom from potential complications and burdens through minimalism. But minimalism is just kind of an appendage to simplicity because you can live on the outside a life that is very minimalistic but still within yourself, not be operating from a place of focused simplicity and focused purpose. The outside of the cup can be clean and organized and everything has its place, but the inside can still be experiencing all kinds of chaos. And so it's about getting to the heart and cultivating a new kind of heart in relationship to God, which is the spiritual discipline of simplicity. And that's what simplicity has as its heart a focused purpose and a clear purpose. Because without that purpose, you lack kind of a rubric to decide what to say yes and no to, what are your primary versus secondary things. Everything just becomes a soup of commitments that swirl around and we're doing the best we can saying, oh yeah, I gotta do that, I gotta do that, and then we're running over here and we're saying, oh, I don't wanna let this plate drop over here because it's all important. There's no hierarchy of, that comes out of vision or purpose. And so again, even if our lives are filled with many good things, our lives can still feel unnecessarily complicated and bloated and challenging and burdensome without a really clear purpose of what and who you're living for. Your life will always be divided and distracted. You'll always aimlessly drift through your days kind of being carried along by the values and priorities that are acting upon you instead of you moving into your highest priorities. But with a clear purpose installed in your heart, you can live a life that is unified and focused. That's actually where the word integrity come fr comes from. It's a Latin word that means 
an integratedness that from the inside out, your life has integrity. It means being honest, but it means more than that. It means there's a fundamental alignment between your highest values, your purpose, your mission, and how you spend your time. Those are aligned, and it's focused. True simplicity does mean there will be times where we have to do some things less. For some of us, moving in a direction of simplicity will mean saying no to more things. But for other people, moving towards simplicity will mean saying yes to more things. We're going to have to do more. It's not simply as easy as have less, do less, and then you cultivate a simple heart. True simplicity is doing less of the things that matter least and doing more of the things that matter most. Right? You don't just empty your life of bad, burdensome com- uh, complexities. You also fill it with the good and the true and the better. And having a purpose allows you to discern in the particular areas of life how they either need to be constricted or expanded. But the point remains the same, that purpose produces your priorities. If you don't have a clear, focused sense of what your purpose is, it's very difficult to to adjudicate between responsibilities and values and priorities. And so a simple faith, sometimes I hear Christians talk about, I want to cultivate a simple faith. I certainly do, but understand what that means. That doesn't mean having a simplistic faith where I'm just going to sort of grow in my faith to kind of a grade three elementary spiritual level and then just kind of shift into neutral and celebrate the fact that I have a simplistic faith. No, a simple faith is a focused faith where I'm learning to align my life ever increasingly with God's help as I repent and ask for forgiveness and learn and grow. So there's alignment between what God has called me to, the particular vocation that I feel that God has me playing in this world and how I'm spending my time every day. There's alignment there. That's what a simple faith looks like. It's clear, it's focused. You're uh, doing away with the chaff. Richard Foster says this. He says, the spiritual discipline of simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. But the inward and the outward aspects of simplicity are essential. We deceive ourselves if we believe we can possess the inward reality without having a pronounced effect on how we live. So he's saying, you can't say, I have simplicity in my heart, but my entire lifestyle is out of control, financially, socially, relationally, in terms of commitments. But to attempt to arrange the outside lifestyle according to simplicity without having the inward reality at best leads to kind of a deadly legalism where on the inside, there's all kinds of chaos happening. And one of the ways I try and deal with that chaos is to tighten control and minimize things on the outside. That doesn't actually lead to a simple life. That's just a different expression of uh, brokenness of the human heart. Simplicity is an inside-out posture that starts with a new perspective grounded in God's grace and power, and then that eventually overflows into what we do with our time and energy and money. And I would argue that simplicity is something that all of us need to be continually cultivating. Simplicity isn't sort of like an event that you decide you're going to value and then say, I'm going to prioritize it. I'm going to now live according to simplicity. Okay, I'm done. It's a continual cultivation. It's just one of those 
arenas of discipleship that you're never fully done with this side of heaven. You're always kind of moving in and through it and asking God to show you where you need to grow. And just like gardening, you don't just plant the seed and then weed once and say, great, I weeded, now my garden is simple, right? You have to keep your garden focused by nourishing the highest priorities and intentionally choking out and weeding out the secondary, unnecessarily complex uh, secondary and tertiary commitments so that the garden of your life can breathe and has health and can actually flourish. The Bible actually gives a lot of warnings to what happens when a kind of overgrowth and, and bloat of commitments and priorities and even good values comes into our life. We need to cultivate simplicity for the following reasons, and I'm just going to read through some of these and reference the Bible verses. First of all, simplicity allows us to avoid double-mindedness. The book of James talks a lot about double-minded people, of being pulled in this direction, but also pulled in this direction, right? It's, a, it's an implicit uh, command against living a life where our commitments and allegiances are fractured, that we kind of know where we're going and we're seeking to honor God and love our neighbor, and we have a clear, direct purpose in that. The double-minded man is unstable in all he does. We need to cultivate simplicity because our culture exalts a really destructive idol. Generally speaking, maybe not in every circle, but generally speaking, the modern hero is someone who purposely becomes rich rather than one who intentionally becomes poor for the sake of other people. We baptize sins like covetousness and say, oh, that's just ambition. Or hoarding, we call prudence. Greed, we call industry. We need to cultivate simplicity because as we gain authority and power, God's word hammers us to consider and to be watchful for the ways that that wealth and prosperity and power tends to get corrupted, tends to corrupt our hearts, and we become tempted to use it to our own devices. When God gives instructions to Israel about how their kings are supposed to operate and structure their lives so that they don't live like the kings of the other pagan cultures around them, God says, the king of Israel must not acquire many horses for himself. He must not acquire many wives. Also, he must not acquire much silver or gold, and he must not acquire uh, in, great, in great quantity anything for himself. I want the king of Israel to have a simple, focused devotion to leading God's people well, and that will not happen if he follows the patterns of this world, which is the more power you get, the more lifestyle expansion you're entitled to. More horses, bigger military, more wives, greater scope of pleasure without consequence, and greater silver or gold, a greater sense of being protected because of the, um, the bubble wrap that wealth can provide. God says, not so with you. Jesus said the pure in heart, those who are focused and simple in their devotion will see God in Matthew 5. Paul in 2 Corinthians warns the Christians, he said, I'm afraid that your thoughts will, will lead you astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There can be complexities that just pull us away inadvertently from devotion to Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul warns that Satan desires to impede simplicity in our lives. He says, just as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds can be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Isaiah 55 says, one of the reasons why we can 
cultivate simplicity as believers is because the best things in life are actually free. Isaiah 55 says, come, anyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Even you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And food and feasting is this allusion to being in communion and connection with God and with your purpose in him. The Bible also warns to be very leery of living into an unfocused, ever-expanding, consumptive lifestyle. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, The lover of money will never be satisfied with money, nor the lover of wealth with gain. You will never be able to reach the bottom of human greed. It will become a black hole that will consume you. And Hebrews 12 says, Christians are called to lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles. And I want to make that distinction because the book of Hebrews does. Not every weight that holds you back from running faithfully the race of your life is sin, right? Lay aside every weight and every sin that can entangle you. So again, sometimes the things we have in our lives aren't sinful, but they are a weight that is impeding us from running our race. Maybe they're fine for someone else. But for us, it's slowing us down. It's not allowing us to live into the vision God has for us. And so the Bible says, if it's sin, drop it. But also, if it's something good that's just become burdensome, be willing to drop it so that you can run the race that God has called you to. And so in running the race that God has for us to cultivate simplicity, I just want to share 10 really basic practices of simplicity that have helped me and have helped people that I've been in dialogue with about these issues over the years. So I'm going to move through these really quickly. I'm not going to do a deep dive into any of them. And these are not to be received as 10 habits and things that you need to integrate into your life right now. Take the long view of simplicity. It's a marathon, not a sprint. There might be one thing here that you're like, hey, you know what? That is something that I feel like I could take a next step on this week. That's totally great. Honor God, not by doing all 10 perfectly starting tomorrow. Honor God by saying, there's something here probably for me that I either needed to learn today or needed to be reminded of. And what's a step that I could take this week to begin kind of weeding that garden and allowing the highest priorities in my life to take root? So the first thing is, I think it's really important to craft some kind of a personal, mi personal mission statement or rule of life. Different traditions have different words for this, but I think it's really important to set aside some amount of time. I did this in my late teens, early 20s, and write down some kind of an articulation of what it looks like for you to live into God's highest priorities. Like as a Christian, there are certain priorities and values that you don't get to choose, they're just commanded of you, right? The great commandment, love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbors as yourself. You don't get to, as a Christian, say, I'll take that on, on advisement, Jesus, thank you very much, but that's gonna be like priority number seven. Jesus says that is the greatest commandment, right? Jesus said, Matthew 6, um, 33, seek first the kingdom of God, then all the other things will be added to you. So there is a priority. And if you are a Christian who is under the lordship of Jesus, your number one priority in some sense is love God, love people, seek first the kingdom. 
But for as many people and as many Christians as there are in this room, the shape of what that's going to take is going to look very different. And what your personal mission statement or rule of life is, is your best articulation from your walk with God and your observation of your life to say, this is what I think, this is how I think God's called me to do that. So here's an example that I found online. So this is a pastor who said, my purpose is to be a dedicated disciple of Christ, to be the very best husband and father I can be, and to create content that improves men's lives and stay physically strong throughout my life. That's my purpose in life, and I also describe my priorities in this order. Be a disciple of Christ, be the best husband and father I can be, then to create content that improves people's lives, and then to stay physically strong throughout my life. That's it. But when you have that, and then if you review it weekly, and make tweaks along the way, I've changed mine and altered it as I've grown and learned different things, but as I review it weekly, usually on Sunday night before I start my week, and again, I don't want to make it sound like I always do that because I don't, but let me tell you, there's a difference to how I move into a week having taken a few minutes to review my own sense of personal mission before God and to do that prayerfully versus me saying like, yeah, yeah, I got it. Let's just move into doing stuff in the week. That is a very, very important discipline. And then second to that is starting your day with a devotional time. I talked about devotionals last week. And part of the reason why I think it's ideal, it doesn't work for everybody, but it's ideal to start your day with devotions is that you're grounding your day in your highest priorities. You're putting first things first. You're saying, God, I give this day to you. You're gonna put something on my heart today. I wanna live for you. I wanna be faithful. I wanna go into the day calibrated towards and focused on what matters most. I don't wanna wake up, live my day, and then at the end of my day, do like a devotional, which again, isn't terrible or wrong or anything. It's just, if you wanna lead into greater simplicity, I think it's better to start your day with your highest priorities because that will reframe how the rest of the day goes. Number three, just learn to say no. Um, you cannot live a simple life. You can't live a focused life going in a million different directions. Some of us have a greater capacity for service than others and socializing and all kinds of different things, but all of us at a certain point in our life, if we wanna be fruitful, in our relationships and our core commitments, we're just gonna have to say no to good things. Again, we're not saying yes to every awesome opportunity and no to the bad ones. We're saying yes to the highest ones and no to ones that are good, but maybe not for right now, not for this season of life, so that our highest priorities get the attention they deserve. And that's difficult because none of us like saying no. We often, we want to help, but if we're always saying yes, we have to remember that we're ultimately saying no to our highest priorities. Because if we keep saying yes to every priority, to every person, to every opportunity, no matter how good, our life is just gonna get overrun by many good things and the highest things, and the most important relationships and priorities are gonna get choked out. Number four, develop the habit of giving things away. Ecclesiastes 5.13 says, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. General rule of thumb that I try and use is if I haven't used it or worn it in a year, I give it away, right? And I went into my closet this morning and I have this jacket from a long time ago I bought. I thought, oh, I probably will use that jacket. I don't think I've worn it in like half a decade, right? I have 
games, video games. I have lots of stuff that I've accumulated that I just don't need and don't use anymore. And there's someone else who could be blessed and enjoy those things. Just give it away. I don't need to hoard this stuff. If I haven't used it in a year, it's very unlikely that I'm going to need it this year as opposed to last year. Number five, avoid debt. Proverbs 22.7 says the borrower is the slave to the lender. This is something that Heather and I have worked on for a long time. I know that uh, I, I certainly don't want to send the message out there that you know, all debt is bad. I think certainly in our cultural context, certain levels of debt are unavoidable. And I think a distinction between good debt and bad debt uh, is necessary. There's strategic debt that puts you in a position to build your life, whether it's buying a home or getting an education maybe. But there's also a lot of debt that maybe a previous generation would have called uh, unjustifiable debt that maybe my generation and below says, well, it's just part of life. Like you just, right? You just get certain stuff during the year and if you want it, you kind of take it and credit cards and line of credits and being able to go into debt and then subsume it into your mortgage, that's just how modern life works and there's no, it's not a big deal. And I actually think it's a big deal um, the practice that we've tried to cultivate in our family is that we do not have money for something, we do not buy it. If we can't pay for it in cash or with debit and it can't come out of our checking account, unless it's an emergency expense, like there's a big car repair that we don't have the money for that we hadn't saved up yet, um, we don't put anything on the credit card. We don't use our line of credit. We don't see credit cards and lines of credit as extensions of income that just kind of hold a $4,000 or $10,000 thing and we're just paying off the interest. Avoid debt. People carry so much psychological and emotional stress because when you're carrying uh, non-essential debt, consumer debt, it just kind of is rumbling around in the back of your head and in your heart. Just pay down debt as quickly as possible. If you go into debt, get rid of it ASAP. Number six, learn to enjoy things without owning them. This can be as simple as you don't need to buy every book that comes out, go to the library. Like borrow, ask a friend if they have the book. Again, sometimes we have this sense that like owning something is better than just borrowing it or using it through a free resource. You don't need to own everything. You can enjoy things, right? I don't need to own a boat. I just go to Mark Dickinson and say, Mark, <laughs> let me borrow your boat. He would never do that because I only have one eye and I would crash it and be a terrible accident. But he's like, Jeff, I won't let you borrow my boat, but you can come on my boat. And it's like, that's awesome. Fast from things that you need to live a good life. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that complements simplicity really well, where you just challenge yourself for certain months of the year, for certain weeks to say, what are things that are good things, but I kind of feel like I can't live without them? Video games, Netflix, eating out, whatever it is. And I just voluntarily fast from those things for an amount of time that's sacrificial enough for me to feel it and be like, ooh, maybe my dependence on this is a little bit too much. But also to fast long enough from it that you recalibrate and after a few days or a few weeks you think it's not really that bad at all. I've kind of detoxed that pattern out of my system and now it's like, oh, if I choose to re-engage it, I'm going to do so differently because I'm now not a slave to it. I'm not doing it reactively. I'm doing it intentionally and I'm creating distance at certain times of the year between, pattern, between these things that can overtake my heart. Number eight, Shun anything that distracts you from the kingdom of God. And this is a very personal thing for Christians. Again, whether or not it's good or not, you might have a life that says, I don't know what to cut because it's all so great. All these relationships, all these commitments, doing all these things. 
But again, are there things that are just distracting you from keeping Jesus at the center, seeking first the kingdom of God, and even if they aren't something evil or bad or sinful, you just might need to say, in order to pursue Jesus more fully, I need to say no to this, maybe not forever, but just for right now. And then number nine, give boldly and give sacrificially. And this is my personal testimony, is that few things will gently force you into simplicity of posture and expression quicker than by prioritizing giving. And by giving, I am talking about giving money away into something that, generally speaking, you don't have any prospective return on investment for, right? I remember when my wife and I fought and argued and strategized and thought, and for, for us, giving like 1% of our income to God's purposes through the church was huge. Like I remember when like, just like sponsoring a child every month, like that was big for us as a newly married couple. And then to wrestle and say, I wanna give, but at the end of the day, it didn't feel like we could give because even at that stage, we had lifestyle bloat in certain areas. But then when we made the decision to move towards tithing, 10% of our income, we didn't start there. That was too much of a leap of faith for us, but we started with like two and a half percent. We calculated what it was and we started doing it. What happened was systemic in nature in a very positive way. We were just now learning to live on 2.5% less of our income. And at the start, it was like, oh my goodness, what are we gonna do without that $75 or whatever it was, right? You're like, ugh. I, we could have gone to the movies, we could have eaten out, but then a month goes by or two months go by and you're like, well, it wasn't that bad. And we've been forced to get creative and we've played more board games together and gotten together with friends more instead of just always defaulting to eating out or going to the movies. And then when we move from 2.5 to 3.5 and then to five and then to 7% and then to 10% and now we give 10% of our income as a basic discipline and it even doesn't really feel sacrificial sometimes because we don't need, we don't need, we've just learned, we've kind of strengthened that muscle in such a way that uh, we're able, that's kind of the baseline, that's a default, and then we can continue to look for what are other ways above and beyond that that we can give to God's purposes. And yet, making that decision to start giving was, for us, the turning point in systemically helping us to learn to live a simple lifestyle because it sort of put that fire underneath us to be like, okay, you have to learn to be more creative and you have to press into the things that matter. And when we pressed into the things that really mattered more and more, we just began to realize a lot of the stuff we don't need the extra money for. And what felt like a threat and like, oh, God's taking away this thing that we so desperately need, we realized the first 10% belongs to God anyways. And then we began to use the rest of our 90% much more wisely as a result. And so I know that we're at different levels of faith and integration and thinking through that. And maybe, again, you're not a Christian. Like, I'm not going to give any money to this church. Like, that's no problem. But you, I still think you need to give boldly. I think you need to give your uh, finances away in a way that is at least bold and sacrificial. You don't have to worry about a number or a percentage. But you should give in a way that, for where you are right now, is significantly uncomfortable. That causes your lifestyle to have to adjust. Right? If you're giving in such a way that you can just keep living the life on your terms, on your agenda, that's not sacrificial giving. That's just giving out of the opulence and overflow of your life, which isn't a bad thing, but it won't necessarily help to move you towards simplicity. 
I really wish someone years before would have sat down with Heather and I and said, this is a leap of faith, this is gonna be hard, but do it now. Because the blessings that have accrued in our life because of it are, that's a whole sermon series I could do. So in closing, what I wanna say is the spiritual discipline of simplicity is very, very powerful. Even when it's practiced imperfectly, it will lead to tremendous gains in your life spiritually and then systemically in other areas. But I also believe that in order to live a life with that kind of simplicity and focus at its center, I really believe you have to have Jesus on the throne of your heart. The goal of life isn't to simply live a simple life. The goal of life is to be reconnected with the source of life and to have communion with him such that my desire for secondary things begins to fade. Right? We were designed to live in focused connection with God, but along the way, we've all decided to try and access the good life on our terms, according to our agenda. Right? We've decided to do what's right in our own eyes. And even when the principles of simplicity are baked into our life, without Jesus on the throne, there's still sort of a, um, people have described it to me as kind of an unsettled, disjointed quality to our lives. There still feels like there's a missing piece, that something isn't fully cohering. There's a center that isn't gravitationally holding our lives together with integrity. And some people go to their graves and they never understand why that is. And it's because you cannot live life without God. And you can't live simply without having encountered the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God and the adoption of God, the salvation of God, the love of God, which begins to cohere the center of who you are together, your heart, what the Bible calls your heart. Without the, you know, we can talk about first things, what are your first things, but there's a first thing above every other first thing. And if without that first thing, whether you think about it on on the top of the pyramid or as the foundation, there'll always be a sense of "Mm, something's not right and we'll still continue to shift the, um, some of the accessories of our life. Maybe Maybe I just need to say no more. Maybe I need to do this over here. Maybe I need to do less over here. Maybe I need to go more minimalist. Maybe I need to go more extreme. Maybe I need to learn to meditate more. Maybe I need to do, do whatever it is. But it's actually more fundamental than that because there is a first thing that causes everything else to find its proper place and to settle so that simplicity is possible. And when you encounter that love and truth, what I have found is over time your appetite for lesser loves and lesser commitments and lesser priorities begins to wane and your desire that God's kingdom would be established in your life and that God would use you in a focused way to bring his light and love and goodness to bear on this world, that increases. And you begin craving and wanting a pure and simple devotion to Jesus. And so simplicity for me begins and ends with Jesus, his grace, his love, his power, and the focus that I think can only come from knowing who you are in him and what he has uniquely called you to in this life. Let's pray.